You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Hey kids, you know what time it is. It's digital noise time. Middle it's been a few weeks. We had those where we had a whole you know ton of them in a row. Yeah, I think did. there was like two months where I didn't come here without walking out with like six movies each yeah, time. And it's true this time as well. There'll actually be a couple in a row after this as well, because John's got one coming up <laughs> shortly after this, and then Aaron will be back again. But uh we have a whole stack of fun movies to talk about this week. But before we get started, uh I need to talk about our new sponsors, which is Circle Brewing Company. I'm so pleased to be partnered with these guys. It's funny, the guys at the bar, one of the bars I hang out with always make fun of me because I was like, don't you want to try a different beer? I'm like, nah, I kind of like the Circle Blur. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I'll stick with the Circle Blur, which is like an American, one of my favorite American-made Hefeweizens. Really delicious, really smooth. And yeah, I probably drank too much of it already. And maybe it's a danger sign that now I'm getting it from them as a thank you for, for, for uh, sponsoring. But to be honest, I'd be drinking it anyway. The, my local 7-Eleven carries it in the cans. I was buying it there and now they're just giving it to me. You know, and, and admittedly, this is the first time I've heard of it, but I'm downing a tuxedo t-shirt, which is just a delightful name. Yeah. And it's damn good. Yeah. That's a black IPA and it is one of those IPAs that the, the stoutiness of it counterbalances the maltiness, counterbalances the hops and creates a really interesting flavor. You actually know what you're talking about. Excellent. Go you. Well, to some degree. I'm not like one of the beerists or anything, but I do love Circle uh, Beers, and they have been very kind to be a sponsor for the site. They're very excited about it. We're very excited about partnering with them. Hopefully, we'll have some announcements about stuff we're actually doing at their tap room, which is located at 2340 West Breaker Lane, Suite B, right here in Austin, Texas. But if you don't live in Austin, you can't go to their tap room, which you should if you, you do live here because there's lots of great seasonals in there. They, they have this one, oh my God, uh, a doppel, uh, uh, was it a doppel blur or something? Um, doppel, uh, yeah, doppel blur, which is an alternative to the circle blur, which is described on the board as sweet banana cream. Ooh, so it's I like, want. it's so good. I, I have found that I always tend towards the really fruity sweet varieties that you get when it comes to fancy beer. Yeah, I mean, too. I want that. Yeah, it's, man, <laughs> it is tasty. We'll make a point to make a trip over there some night, and I'll yes. be like, oh, like, now try this before they stop making it, because <laughs> it's so good. Uh, but they have a lot of those that are, that are there that are really tasty. They, they do those. They're one of those breweries that do really cool experimental, like, beers often, too. So you're like, you're like, ooh, what is that? That sounds interesting. I'll try that. But yeah, you can get a lot of their beers in the can. So go to your local convenience store or craft brewery uh, retailer and pick up some circle or go to your local bar because they sell kegs on top as well. Make sure if you do go to the tap room, you told them that one of us.net sent you. Also, real quick before we get started, I want to say, yeah, I know it's the holidays and all the pocketbooks are tight, but they're po- they're pretty tight over here at oneofus.net too. We cannot do this show without subscribers. And I mean, really, I can't even tell you how much we, this show, all the shows, they can't go on without subscribers. And some of you guys out there, I know because you, it's through PayPal and it'll set up an account and sometimes you change your card and you forget to update stuff. Some people use a tertiary email account to connect to stuff like PayPal and you don't even realize that your subscription is expired. Guys, 
please check if you had like a, a kindness subscription to us and see if maybe it ex- expired because we need we need that money to keep the site going. It is really expensive and gets more expensive all the time. Uh, I actually upped my subscription a little bit, and <laughs> because of course she did, uh, my mother apparently subscribed. Are you serious? I am dead serious. When, I, I don't think I've gotten the email for that yet. Really? I'll, I'll have to reach out to her. I'm going to have guilt or she, she, uh, we were going through the different pricing variants and she was like, well, like just $25 a month. is not that bad. Oh, I mean, geez. yeah, sure. I was like, oh yeah, cool. Do it. Please. please. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We could use it. That's like I said, what keeps this going like, at that point? You can hear all the recordings, including the ones that I really don't want you to hear. <laughs> <laughs> the day, the, like the gathering we yeah. get on that, which is our party bi-weekly party podcast, which we have a new one that should be out uh, as y'all listen to this, which I'm very excited about where we talk about the best and worst of Christmas. Don't worry, mom. Aaron is not on that one. <laughs> but uh, now that we have done all the house cleaning, let's get on to what we are here for, the raison d'etre, the reviews of home releases. And we're going to start off with a film that I know a lot of people avoided because... They were like, oh, this whole Disney remakes thing. I'm so, like, already irritated with it. Well, let me show you that Christopher Robin is not a remake of Winnie the Pooh at all. In yeah, fact, if anything, not in any way. it's a sequel, like a sort of meta sequel to Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. It felt like some a cross between a Winnie the Pooh movie and uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. Especially so much when, so that I kept checking to see if Spike Jones directed it. Well, no, but it was Mark Forster who actually. This isn't totally new to him. This sort of magical realism stuff. He did Stranger Than Fiction, which I still yeah. think is the best Will Ferrell movie. Agreed. And uh, Finding Neverland, which is another book that sort of is like uh, a kind of meta look at a famous children's storybook. Uh, yeah, like, which was okay. Yeah, I, think. I, I like Finding Neverland. I don't remember my opinion on it. This particular one uh, follows the like is is in a fictional universe. It's not following the writer of the Winnie the Pooh books, but it's sort of like in a way is because the guy who is playing the main character, uh, Ewan McGregor, is Christopher Robin, the character from the books, all grown up. And he's like a businessman and he has a family and, you know, he remembers all this stuff fondly, but... Like, about being in the Hundred Acre Wood and hanging out with Winnie the Pooh and Tigger and Piglet and Eeyore and Kangaroo, Owl and Rabbit. But he doesn't completely... Like, part of him kind of believes it happened, and part of most of him, though, is like, well, obviously, that was just the imagination of a child. Uh, And he eventually gets into... Like, he's having issues with, like, he works too hard, and (laughs) his... Which I know drives my friend Martin Thomas up the wall, where it's like, bad dad, how dare you work to support your family and not have enough time to spend with them? Um, but you know, the family's a little bit like, come on, we miss you. We want to spend time with you. Haley Atwell being his wife, uh, who, who herself is an architect in the film and, uh, their, their daughter. And he kind of goes like, they're staying in his old house back near the hundred acre wood. And he kind of makes a point like to, he, well, he doesn't make a point to go visit them. Basically Winnie the Pooh comes back to life. And it's like, we, the other friends are missing in the woods, and I don't know where they are, and the only person who can help me is Christopher Robin. So he goes to the city to find Christopher Robin, yeah. and Christopher Robin is like, oh, fuck, Jesus well, Christ, you're real. <laughs> and that's the thing they did, I think, that was really smart, is at no point in this movie is are the Pooh and other characters imaginary. Like, flat out, they're real. If people see them, they see a little stuffed bear walking around. That was a brilliant decision. Which because- I, I suspect strong came from the success of Paddington of them yeah. watching those and going 
we shouldn't make this where maybe they're real, maybe they're not. No, they're real. Although I will say, uh, to Martin's defense, that drives me batshit as well, because it's never just that the dads have to work and therefore they can't spend time. It's they're cold and indifferent and uncaring because they work so much. Right. Which it's actually ended up being one of my biggest complaints about the movie is that anything with Christopher Robin is a plot we have seen a hundred times over. Even uh, I remember I saw it in Elf last week <laughs> and watching that with my wife. It's that exact thing of a dad who works too much and is working for a company that keeps asking them to work when they're trying to spend time with their family. Yeah. We've seen it. Well, I mean, which goes but, all the way back to a Christmas Carol, yep. you know, uh, but look, uh, even though in that one, it was just totally the boss's fault. Uh, but, but, uh, <laughs> beyond that though, like th- there's a storyline that kind of get, comes into play with his daughter and his yeah. wife and their interactions with, uh, Pooh and friends. Cause I can't name all the characters like you did. <laughs> well, um, I had the list in front of me, so. <laughs> but like that stuff was really entertaining. And anytime it switched to them, it pulled me in. Agreed. Um, and like, so I watched this with my son. This is a, good acceptable movie for pretty much any age group because there isn't anything terribly offensive or not at all intense but it still manages to be mostly entertaining the one thing i will say aside from just being totally bored with this plot uh it's a little slow like it takes a while to get going and i think it's because we've seen the plot that that opening section of the movie just stretches on and on it does the, the first act of this film is very slow yeah like i'm not quite sure who it's it's geared for because i feel like this is a kids film but man that first act is going to cut a lot of kids out of your audience but uh that aside there's some amazing creature design in this all of Pooh and friends look truly believably realistic, which is weird to say. And kind of like they did the choice of kind of making them look like dog-eared old toys. Yeah. You know, they don't like, they, they don't look CG pristine. Yeah. They it, look well, battered. It, Pooh isn't a bear. Pooh is a magical stuffed bear that has somehow come to life. And yeah. all of the animals, barring the rabbit and the owl, who frankly don't have much screen time, no. um, are like that. And it's a, it's a great decision. Which is a shame because it's Peter Capaldi as rabbit and Toby yeah. Jones as owl. You're like, kind of wanted to hear more of those guys. But uh, I mean, otherwise it's, it's a, good thing. I'd check it out for the Christmas holidays. It's the kind of movie that the whole family consider on the watch. Having said that, make sure if you're watching this with your kids, just have something to get through that first hour. Yeah. It, like I said, it is a bit of a slog getting to the point where the film actually starts to charm. But once but it does, once it's it really there, it's, it's great. Yeah. Uh, and it sells the magic of imagination quite well. Uh, there's a, a bunch of bonus features on here, uh, including uh, a movie is made for Pooh, which is a, a look with the director and some of the main actors, including Jim Cummings, who is one of the great voice actors who returns to, to voice Pooh who discuss what this whole kind of meant for them to be part of this based on their growing up. I know I grew up with William the, uh, Witty the Pooh, and I'm sure some of these guys did too. Yeah. Uh, Pooh finds his voice, which is Jim Cummings talking about having voiced Pooh and Tigger since 1987. Um, Pooh and Walt became friends, which is a short feature ride exploring how Walt Disney got to be a fan of the Winnie the Pooh stories and why he ended up choosing to adapt them as the extended shorts way back in the day. Pooh and Friends Come to Life, uh, which is an uh, interview with Bronte Carmichael, who plays Christopher Robin's daughter, talking. who, for some reason, is the person they choose to to talk to about how they did the digital effects <laughs> with the animals. It's, sure it's stunt doc casting. <laughs> and if you, have the, if you uh, upload the digital version of this, there's another bonus feature called In Which We Were Very Young, which is about the real 
Christopher Robin, who indeed was the son of A.A. A. Milne, who kind of wrote this original book for his oh. son with his son envisioned as the main character in it. So, uh, yeah, that's, um, it's, it's, if you are a family man, this is a good now, film or, to have. You, you know who, I think this is really for either families who have slightly older children or for anybody who really loved Pooh as a kid but is an adult now. Like, I think you, they're going to get a lot more out of this because they can make it through that first hour. But, yeah. Otherwise, it's a, it's a good movie. The next one, which I consider to be also an essential thing if you, like, have kids in the house or if you're just an adult who loves the top-of-the-line animation that's out there is Pixar Shorts Volume 3. Yes. It's been, like, two years since Volume 2 came out, which, you know, makes sense because, generally speaking, these are ones that are were the shorts that were before movies that came out, before any Pixar release. But um, this also includes some shorts that were, were not, that yes. were, like, some kind, some that were Blu-ray exclusives, things like that. But it just collects them all for those of you Unlike me, who don't own every Pixar movie on Blu-ray already, this is kind of just ex- taking out all the shorts and putting yeah, them together. I know. It, it, this was one of those projects. Uh, this release is one of those things where I'm like, oh yeah, I live in a bubble because I also have all the Pixar releases, and so I have them all anyways. And I'm always like, why would anyone buy this? And oh yeah, because most everyone else is an obsessive geeks who buy everything they can. And, and, and this is a nice collection for yeah. like, especially for like you know where you want to put something in front of your kids, but maybe you you know you're leaving in an hour. <laughs> so the shorts are all going to be like five to six minutes long and you can put a, a few of them on and then it's easy to get out the door. And these are cool. I mean, the ones that are the worst ones were the Blu-ray add-on yeah, stuff. Yeah, I was about to say that there's this line down the middle. And so I, I watch these with my son as well. And all of the Blu-ray extra ones, they're entertaining. And if you've seen the movie... You get a little bit out of it, and it's like, oh, that's a that's a funny gag. But all of the ones that happened before the movies are all legitimately engrossing. Oh, My yeah. son actually uh, made me play the bow one, I think, three times in a row. Ah, from Incredibles, just, too. Yeah, yeah, just again, again. <laughs> I still think Piper is the best one on here, and that is the one that actually won the Academy Award for Best Short of this collection that was uh, came on came with Finding Dory, which is a baby bird who leaves the nest to try and hunt for food on the beach, and then turns out he's like a savant of well, doing that. <laughs> the, the animation is gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, most of these, Just they're beautiful, but divine. they're all such a different style. That one's yeah. so photorealistic, it's insane. Well, and so I, I admit, Bao was my favorite one. I cry at it. Two of the three times I watch it, and the third was just because I was burnt out. <laughs> I really like Party Central as well, which is the uh, came with the Muppet Muppets Most Wanted theatrical release, and uh, is a Monsters Inc. thing where they were like trying to basically turn their friend's pathetic frat house and make <laughs> them have a good party by stealing all the guests and stuff from a big. That was party. one of the better gag ones. That was entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Um, the Blue Umbrella is just a very almost French seeming short. Yeah, you know, with the animation style and it's. It's like, yeah, we're not going to give you a beautiful, happy ending. We're going to give you a complex, emotional ending. But these are all, on the whole, worth watching. And this is a really solid collection to have. Um, there's a few bonus features as well here, including audio commentaries on pretty much every one by the creators and neat little introduction pieces that I really, the introduction pieces were really nice. And they're, they're short enough that they basically come in and go, Hey, here's two facts and six sentences and we're done. And each one is nice, but informational. Each one finds somebody finds a new way to do it. 
like yeah. some of them have like 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 their own sort of like let's do this and make it funny, or others like let's do this and make it sad. Well, yeah, like the, the guys who do Piper, it's I believe it's just them standing up, one of them with a guitar and yeah. the other with a bunch of um, I forget who it is, like um, a famous musician, too. storyboards and just showing different. Uh, what they're going to say on that instead. Yeah, I can't remember. It's like the guy who did the score for it is like a really famous musician. Oh. And I can't remember who's he's the guy with him on there. And I was like, I can't remember. But anyway, yeah, there's also a making of bow on here, which obviously was one of the big high profile ones on this. Yeah, on and this actually, list. I heard that she just signed on to direct her first feature, too. So oh, nice. Go her. Uh, Don Dummy She, who did it. Um, and then there's caricature, a horrible way of saying I love you. That's kind of cute. That's another one of those things going, look how much fun it is work at Pixar, yep. which uh, is basically, apparently, the animators have a running caricature night where they all sit around and they're like, okay, nobody's allowed to take this personally. And caricatures <laughs> take your worst features and exaggerate them. And so it's like them sort of caricaturing each other. And some of them are like, I don't know if I could not be offended if somebody <laughs> drew me like this. It's like, thank you. Thank you. It's an honor just to be caricature. I'm going to go cry in the bathroom now. Uh, we also, speaking of kids stuff, they put out yet another take on the original Christmas specials by Rankin Bass. And I grew up with these things. I mean, we watched them every single Christmas without fail. And this is the best set yet they've done of these things. Um, they've, they've put out a lot of sets that are kind of like, that'll have one or two of the really essential ones and then a bunch of the Rankin Bass crap that nobody wants. Uh, and this is kind of je- like a prime, it's got two of the eh, but the rest are the, the the three that like everybody. It's really got the wants. three that made Rankin Bass famous for their Christmas. Yeah, uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and Frosty the Snowman, which there are the, the three essential ones. Which I admit, I have vague memories of Frosty, but I don't think I've seen either of them or any of the three since I was like six. Well, they're one of the things I like about them so much. They were really top of the line stop motion animation for their time. Um, and uh, unlike most Christmas specials, which were just cheap animation, these were really pretty good animation and they all have very weird. They're not like, if you've heard the tales or listened to the songs, Rankin Bass always found a way to add their own weirdness to it. Like for some reason, in the middle of Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, there's like a Lion King with, I mean, literally with a crown and wings. I have no idea, but there's weird <laughs> shit like that. You're like, wait, what? Uh, the Abominable Snowman is a character. Uh, the extras on here are there's a cricket on the hearth, which is based on a Dickens short story, one of his other Christmas stories. Okay. That is kind of sad. But that one's just traditional animation, just with a Rankin-Bass look to it, you know? And it, it's okay. I mean, it's hardly essential, but... Well, it, it's, that's why it's an extra feature as opposed to what yeah. you're buying it for. And then there's the Little Drummer Boy, which is done in stop-motion animation, but for it's 25 minutes. It's, a, it's the shortest thing on here, I think, and it still feels like it's too long. And it's <laughs> definitely, like, like, the most, like overtly like Christian Christmas thing on here. I mean, it's a little drummer boy. Drummer boy goes to visit Jesus, yeah. what have you. Um, is it? I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it, I like, mean, I, I, all of my Christmas stuff is very separate from the religious aspect of it. Sure. So yeah. We, I don't know. I, it, I, it's weird. My ideal Christmas is both extremely Victorian and extremely secular. <laughs> so it's like Dickens. If he just didn't give a shit about all the Bible stuff. <laughs> uh, th- I mean, 
I, I genuinely really uh, enjoy going back to rewatching these things. And there's some neat bonus features on this one, uh, including in the bonus features, a whole look at how they do all of that, how they did all that stop motion back in the day. Well, that would be actually and really interesting a lot of people, to watch. Like, and these are new featurettes, too. And then apparently, uh, I believe it was Disney did a thing where one Christmas they paid for Rankin Bass to come back and make a new Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer movie that was in 4D, which is that sort of weird 3D thing where there was like, you go into the theater where there was no actual seats. You just had to sit on the floor and, and like with the glasses, but then there was stuff in the theater around you that sort of interacted with the screen. Well, you don't get to see that part of it. You just see the movie, but it looks exactly like the original Rudolph, maybe a little more brighter colors and stuff, but it's a new, like, it's sort of like, a, a com- it, very compressed version of the story, but with a bunch of new shit in is it. Is it like smoother animation, I guess? No, not really. I mean, the original still looks pretty smooth. Okay. But yeah, there's a lot of bonus features on Rudolph, especially. Frosty the Snowman uh, has more in there, including a commentary by an animation historian. And Santa Claus is Coming to Town has a uh, a feature on the history of Rankin-Bass animation. Okay. So, yeah, this is a solid little Blu-ray set. If you ever remembered this stuff fondly, this is, quite frankly, the one to get. Uh, and then moving on to something that... I would argue is still family friendly in its way, but maybe if your family's a little weirder, is Heavy Trip. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I I was like, when I handed this to Aaron, I was like, this is so your movie, you don't even know it. You're not kidding. This is the surprise hit for me. Um, I watched this when I was uh, visiting my family for Thanksgiving, and my wife, it just took me a couple of days to see it, and my wife came in and basically watched the last third of it with me, and was just looking over at me as I'm cackling gleefully and all the amazing stuff happening like what the fuck is up with this guy it's it's one of those films that at first you're like this is odd and then it's kind of charming and then it's really funny look at it, it it's charming and that's kind of what nails the head and basically uh, just to go back to go into the plot description it is about the best Finnish, I believe. Finish. Metal band who's never actually played a venue. Mind you, black metal band. Black metal so band. So those bands that go... Rah, 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 yeah, rah, I know. Rah, rah, rah. Which, just a ca- caveat before I get into this, I hate that music. It's, I'm not a fan. I, I hate but it. No offense against anyone yeah. who likes it, but it's not just all. not my it's thing. It's just not my cup of tea. It still made me laugh. I forget the name of it, but there actually is a black metal band that has a dog for a singer. Because they're like, what's the difference? It all sounds like... (laughs) But so these guys, they've been playing since they were in high school, and they're all in their 30s now, and have never actually played a real song. and Well, or uh, had an original song. Had an original song. And everyone in town makes fun of them because they're all long-haired black metal guys. Yeah, it's funny they're all like, oh, fucking hippies. It's like, you guys really don't know what a hippie yeah, is. Yeah, well, they like yeah. they work at places like a reindeer factory. Plus, what crazy uh, fucking person goes and tries to start up shit with a black metal head? I'm like, you. no. They, you. Yeah, they get made fun of at one point, although uh, towards the end, there is a response to them making fun of them for being gay just because of their hair that is maybe my favorite response to that I've ever seen in a movie. I was like, yes, thank you. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> but um, this movie's heart is such in the right place, especially these guys who are all like, they're all sort of a different type of metalhead, even though they're all in the same band. Like, there's a guy who's like the total black metalhead guy from the band. Who's like, is he the guy who the, who's the super genius who then paints himself? Up yeah, yeah. Who's the guy who actually chooses to look like a black metal guy? And the main character, Atura, who's definitely like, I mean, 
decidedly the protagonist of the yes. film who is like sweet. He's has a sort of crush on this local girl who clearly likes him back, but the to- local town, like, like celebrity crooner. Yeah. Like, like he, already claimed like a wedding himself. singer. Exactly. And he's just a total cheese ball. So, but anyways, they, they are visited by the promoter who runs the biggest Norwegian metal festival. in I guess Norway. Yeah. And, accidentally spill blood all over him. And so (laughs) through this odd incident, they essentially say that they have a venue coming up, even though they don't and instantly become celebrities in the town because they're now the most successful people in the entire town. Everyone turns on the whole hating them to like admiring them. And so the story is essentially about these guys Going from this is a hobby to no, let's actually have a go at this and them trying to hit all of the requirements for being metal. And they are metal, but they do it with just this. Aw, gee, shucks, I love life uh, approach that's just so much fun to watch. And shit goes kind of crazy. They get involved with an insane person. Turns into a road trip film. Yeah, it it feels very um, Blues Brothers almost. But it's just a really fun movie. And it actually, by the end of it, I really started to enjoy their their main song that they had that they wanted to demo. And I got into some black metal. Which there's a music video for on the desk. Is there? Oh, I didn't see that. Uh, um, I love the fact that they like they're trying to decide a name for the band. One of them, like they're thinking of all these really generic black metal names. One of them's like Dead Fetus. The other guy is Let's not bring kids into this because <laughs> the whole thing is like, yes, they're black metal, but they're not like those guys who like cannibalize people and take like no, they're, PCP. They're actually all sweet. Yeah, kids. they're all sweet, kind guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they decide on impaled rectum. <laughs> Which I'm like, are you sure? You and, sure you want to go with that? And like, so I, I'm not going to give away the details because the the devil is in the details of this movie. But as they get into the final climax of the movie, the beautiful absurdity hits such heights that like, oh, I was just cackling out loud, laughing, just with this huge grin on my face. It's beautiful. This is a special movie. It, it is. Uh, and I kept hearing people talking about this who saw this at a festival. Like, oh my god, this is just one of those movies that, like, sadly most people will never see, but that, like, is going to be in heavy rotation for me for the rest of yeah, my life. Uh, this is one of the best movies I saw this year, and this is one of those rare movies that once I've reviewed it here, I'm going to be buying it after Christmas because I loved it. Uh, there's also, like I said, there are some bonus features. My favorite is they apparently, I think it was South by Southwest they were here for uh, to promote it. But they did, in fact, come to Austin. The guy who played the lead singer of the band and the guy who was the, the dickhead crooner from the town. <laughs> And so they went around to various iconic places in Austin and did a thing like, hey, we're here touring from the, from this band, and uh, we're just checking out Austin. So they go like the Broken Spoke, which is like a country <laughs> western bar, which is the last place this guy should be, right? And it's just – it's kind of a cute little series of shorts that they filmed just for the fuck of it. They're like, hey, we're in Austin. Let's have fun with this. Uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. So cute. Uh, I believe this actually is streaming somewhere already, but I'm is not it? sure where. Okay. Maybe Shudder. Uh, well, I'll check that first. So going back in time a bit, we're talking about Gas Food Lodging, which arguably is the film that kind of made uh, director Allison Anders a, a a big name for a while in the indie film world. Who also did films like Mi Vida Loca and Grace of My Heart. Um, sadly, her career kind of disappeared. Yeah, I admit I have not heard of her. This but, is my first time seeing one of her movies. But this is one of those movies I was always aware of, always on the like 
the sides are like, eventually I should probably see that. I've always heard it's good. And partially because, I mean, this is 1992. It's got a young Feruza Balk and Ion Sky, uh, who a lot of people know probably best from uh, uh, Say Anything. She was the girl love interest in Say Anything. And there was also, I, I don't know his name, but he was the best character on Prison Break. Uh, he is the boyfriend geologist. Oh yeah, uh, Robert Nepper. Yeah, was, uh, the only time I've ever seen him not play a bad guy yep. was this movie. <laughs> but I mean, this is like uh, all right. So it's um, Brooke Adams, who is also one of those people that you will definitely recognize. She's been in a lot of stuff. I always think of her as from uh, Donald Sutherland's love interest in the in the nineteen seventy eight invasion of the Body Snatchers. But she was also the love interest in the Dead Zone. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sarah. But she is a, a single mom, a waitress. She's got two teenage daughters, which is Ion Sky. I don't know if I'm saying her first name right or not. I kind of feel bad about that. And Faruza Balk, who's the younger one. Uh, uh, the elder daughter, Ioni, she quits school because she's just like, she's like in that super rebellious like phase. She's just wants to do her own thing and like, and she goes to get a job with the waitress alongside her mom, even though she and her mom don't get along at all. Meanwhile, the younger daughter, Constantly sneaks into the Spanish speaking theater and watches like sort of romance dramas from in Mexico Spanish. in Spanish yeah. and is kind of obsessed with them and ends up dating like a guy that everyone else, you know, all the white trash around her is like, you want, that guy's like a cholo. You don't well, want yeah, to be that. It's guy. all racists. Yeah. Except, well, it's this tiny little town, southern town. And, uh, Trudy, Ion Sky meets this British uh, geologist and they kind of get together. Uh, and she's kind of like, this is my ticket out of this town. Be with a real guy, not some lo- local high school loser. And that doesn't work out the way she hopes it to. There's other complications. I mean, this is a slice of life movie, little like drama, drama um, that definitely has some real sort of touching parts yeah. to it. And it's extremely well filmed and acted. But at the end, you're kind of like, well, that was a movie I just well, saw. So like... <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen a more '90s movie than than this in a long time. This movie is everything that defined '90s indie-filled indie dramas. Um, I will admit, Feruza Balk is really good in it. Um, the acting is pretty good across the board, actually. But this is one of two movies that we're going to run into this week that I, I I can't really say anything explicitly negative about it. That I didn't like why I didn't like it, except that. It's just, it's about a bunch of people who are all either terrible or dumb to the point of parody who are taking advantage of or being taken advantage of. And just like, like you can, there's a lot of complexity in the characters, like the mother is the, the sister, but it's still sitting here watching this mother ruin her own life and the lives of her daughters and just watching this hate spiral transition through this family, which like, I guess, like you said, like, yeah, okay. Th- it was okay. Yeah. But I, I mean, I enjoyed uh, that's it. watching it. It's a, like I said, very interestingly shot film. It's got very well-written dialogue, but it's one of those movies that like is a typical, not Hollywood in the slightest. It is, Kind of depressing. It's really depressing. Uh, um, it's bleak. Even like the things that each character is kind of like hoping is going to be their thing, they both kind of like fall apart. Like there's a whole well, thing with like the missing dad that ends up being played by James Brolin, and you're like, okay, well this is going to be a thing, like a like a father daughter meetup, and he's a useless piece of shit. Actually, like I have to admit that plot was the one that kind of pulled me in the most, mm-hmm. just because it was 
it was interesting to see Feruz. Anything with Feruz Balk was I was into. The other sister and the mother was just too depressing for me. But like, yeah, that was okay. Uh, the individual parts were good, but I mean, it is considered to be an indie classic. There's very few films as '90s as this, <laughs> um, but. Like I said, very bites. divorced from all the, the fashion Nista 90s stuff like Reality Bites. Yeah. It's just, it was that period where indie film was really kind of exploding all over the place. And there were some interesting films like this coming yeah. out that nobody was doing things like this that don't maybe hold up as well over time. But when it came out, it was kind of like, wow, you can make movies like this. Yeah. And I can see if I'd seen this back in the 90s, I may have appreciated it a lot more because it would have been very different. Mm. But I just wanted more out of it. I, I needed there to be a more cohesive point to what we were watching. Well, there's a few bonus features. This is uh, Arrow putting this out, uh, who we love. And they put out – there's uh, the 30-minute The Road to Laramie, a look back at gas, food, and lodging, which is a new conversation with uh, between Allison Andrews, the director, and the screenwriter, Josh Olson. There's Cinephile, Real Woman, which is 34-minute – 1995 documentary about some of the female pioneers in filmmaking, including Anders, Jane Campion, Catherine Bigelow, Penny Marshall, and Gail Ann Hurd. So it's, and it's got an insert booklet in a gallery. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's not a huge amount of stuff, but it's actually the right stuff. Yeah. So. It, well, and it, like anything Arrow puts out, it's gorgeous. Agreed. Uh, and then here's one that you didn't get a chance to rewatch. I've seen this movie so many freaking times. I didn't need to rewatch it. That's 1998's Can't Hardly Wait, which is basically like, oh, what do you mean John Hughes isn't making any new movies? <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to make one. Uh, directed by, uh, De- Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont, which is this cast of people that all went on to bigger and better yeah, things. It's one of those, it's like Friday the 13th part four, where, <laughs> I don't think there's a bit player in this who isn't an A player or B player now. Very true. Um, it takes place at a high school graduation party. Your primary character is played by Ethan Embry, who is one of those guys I still have a hard time believing isn't one of the biggest actors in the world because yeah. he's always done such great performances. It's and even it. now, he constantly appears in – like every year, there's a film that comes out that's like one of my favorite movies of the year that he plays a major part in but is because it's so small. Like this year, it was blind spotting. He plays a huge role in, the, in a really key part in that. Then before that, it was like uh, uh, The Devil's Candy played the lead role in that. And then it was like, uh, um, who was the metalhead dad? Like he was just amazing in that film. And then before that, it was that one, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it where, where he and another guy are basically taking money to do outrageous things. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, um, I can't, yeah. I always forget the With name. Rob of it. Corddry in it. Uh, right. No, not Rob Corddry. It was the other one. Uh, another Bald comedian crazy. like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah but <laughs> well, so good. Um, but yeah, Ethan Embry, this is like when he was younger and, and playing Preston Myers, who's got this sort of like lifetime crush on the popular girl, uh, uh, Amanda Beckett, who's not like a horrible person or anything. She's not like, like a well, bitchy sorority girl. Uh, it, it, she's just oblivious that this guy likes her at all. She's not really a character. No. She, she's basically, I, I say this and it's going to sound really offensive, but I don't mean it in this way. She's essentially a sex object. And what I mean is that we only view her through the lens of other people because True. that's how she is viewed in but that she does culture. Get, but she does very yeah. much get a nice moment in she this does. film where she, she finally goes, lets all these guys know, hey, I am not some object. I yeah. am not a person that is just what you imagine. And, I have my own things. And that moment is why, like, this movie has some of the problematic tropes that came up in the 90s that we saw a lot with how it treats women. But that scene goes a long way towards 
repairing how obscenely sex object she is for everything up until then, because it very much is this, oh shit moment. And her ex-boyfriend, they've just broken up, is Mike Dexter, played by Peter Fascinelli, who at this point was making a career out of playing jock assholes, pretty because much. Because he, he has a face for it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's just, he's not happy about it. He's kind of stuck between trying to get her back and trying to fuck some other girl so that she sees it and gets jealous. He's a, he's a real jerk. But a guy who he's been picking on, a nerd throughout high school, has determined this whole night is about get, wreaking a horrible revenge <laughs> on him, which is one of my favorite. Yeah, it, like, that is clearly the best plot. Uh, Charlie Cosmo. Uh, <laughs> but there's so many good people in this. Lauren Ambrose, who I love to death, every, you know, six feet under and all that. Yep. She, she plays kind of uh, Ethan's best friend. Jennifer Love Hewitt's the uh, Amanda Beckett. Uh, Seth Green is in this thing. He is at all at once the most annoying and aggravating character in the entire movie. And he also, I think, has the biggest arc and ends up the most changed at the end. Which almost everybody in this went on to at least be like a a supporting or major lead in a very famous television series or another. Yep. Like no, not very few people in here. Almost nobody went to a list, but almost every person at this party, even people with like one line, you'll be like, Oh my God, look who it is. Yep. It's, it's all just, hey, that guys, or they're influencers like Seth Green, who has his own show now. And- yeah. Uh, exactly. Jenna Elfman has a, uh, a, a very sort of like <laughs> really amazing, like sort of like one of those like epiphany moments in the film scenes where she's like really important to the plot, but she's only in this one scene and playing a, a stripper dressed up like an angel. Yep. Jerry O'Connell plays the guy who basically used to be Mike Dexter in high school and has, is represents kind of his ghost of Christmas future. Who's I, like, I, this is what you're going to turn into if you don't realize what a douchebag you are. You know, Jerry O'Connell is one of those guys who I feel that way, where I kind of wish he had had a bigger career. Mm. Like this sadly may be one of his better performances. It's, it's, well, I mean, I'm always going to like sliders, but yeah. you know, <laughs> um, and like that's not to say he's bad. It's just that, Oh, I wish he was in more stuff. Cause he's always fun to watch. And this is the 20th anniversary edition, which is to say, it's not really better than the previous Blu-ray they put out. In fact, there's less features on this one than the previous Blu-ray, but the previous Blu-ray, I believe, is out of print. So this is what you get. There you go. It's most of them. And this is kind of, for me, kind of like was an essential movie to have in my collection. I love this type of stuff. Like a really great high school movie is like among the best. Yep. You know, and It's and- hard to feel like there's one a generation that almost kind of defines that era and it manages to straddle that line of kind of gross, kind of sweet, but not being terribly offensive at the same time. Yes. Uh, and this is definitely that one for this era. If you're our age, you have to have it. Well, the next one is going way off in a different direction we're talking about, which is Medak Ali, or El, El Callejón de los Milagros, uh, which was also released as the Alley of Miracles in 1995. The reason this is notable is, is twofold. First off, this was a very early Salma Hayek role. Uh, and she is phenomenal. Yes, she is. She, I mean, she is just, man, young Selma Hayek. I mean, Selma I, Hayek now is one of the most beautiful women I, in the I entire world. I turned to world. my wife and was like, has Selma Hayek never not been beautiful? Because Jesus. And, and she's introduced in this movie sitting on a windowsill, brushing her freshly wet hair. It's just, here is the quintessential sexiness of ancient art. <laughs> and this is the most amount of, uh, Aerial Awards, which is the, uh, the Mexican Academy of Film. It's the most ever won by one film was this movie. Uh, really? it, including Best Picture. Uh, 
Um, and more than 49 international awards and nominations. Beside that, uh, Pan's Labyrinth and this were named as the best Mexican films ever made by IMDb.com and Entertainment Weekly. And it was selected as the Mexican entry for best foreign language film at the 68th Academy Awards, but it was not ultimately accepted as a nominee. And all that being said, this is really dated. Yeah. Um, I, I, so <sighs> I very much did not like this movie, actually. Okay. So I'm intrigued that it got that many accolades. It, I mean, it's, it feels very telenovela-ish in a way, but like obviously better than that. Well, but it's so incredibly soapy. So <laughs> it's, it's the Mexican version of Magnolia for me. Sure. Uh, it, it's, is how I saw it. Except instead of having all the different plots, they do it Rashomon style where we watch this character's story and then this character's story and then this character's story and they keep returning to a dominoes game as the central thesis. Right. I actually really like the structure. I do too. And all the actors do an amazing job. The problem I had, and this is the other movie that I was mentioning when talking about gas food lodging, is that there's one kind of okay character and then everyone else is is despicable trash taking advantage of whoever they can. Like the, the opening storyline, and this is on the back of the box I checked so I can talk about it, is about a married father, bar owner, dealing with his own homosexuality. And I can get behind that as a plot. It's just that he is a horrid human being who is cruel and painful to everyone he interacts with agreed as is his son and and it just i mean you have that god this is so bleak like the character you keep holding up until it gets to really you find out her story is some hayek's character and then even then you're like jesus christ what the yeah. fuck are you doing yeah like, you're, nobody you're- has it, there's nobody here that you can kind of attach yourself to and be like okay i really enjoyed this this takes me through it and i feel good about this nobody ends up better off at the end of this movie no no it is a very like multiple tragic tales with people who are yeah. not what they present themselves like, as being who end up being kind of horrible people when horrible things happen to them and yeah god like at least with i compare this to magnolia but with magnolia you have a lot of really powerful change happening in the characters people are fundamentally different coming out of it and often for the better, even if the journey was painful. Like you have Tom Cruise reconciling with his father. It's a beautiful emotional scene. No, nothing in this. Everyone's fucked. Everyone's dead, dying, or miserable. <laughs> it's just painful. And well, you said, yeah, the first one is basically the guy like who's dissatisfied with his marriage, and he's has this sort of in denial about being gay and having a homosexual relationship with a young guy. There's uh um uh. Selma Hayek story, at least the first part of it, Alma, where she's falling in love with this guy, Abel, who, uh, has to leave, uh, with his best friend to the United States, partially because of like running from stuff. Uh, and then Alma disappears because she ends up making a poor decision in her life to get out of her bad position by, yes. by becoming a, pro- a and, high end prostitute. And cor- correct me, but did we ever find out what actually happened to the guy? I don't think we did. Like, it, it, yeah, he just was gonna, Come back, and I don't know whatever happened to him. Uh, Susan Nita, who's like a kind-hearted landlady, but with the worst teeth ever, uh, falls in love with like the guy who works at the bar, who is just a total uh, opportunist. Yes, but it's I'm always like, 
I feel like he actually does kind of have feelings for her. Yeah, that is the closest this movie comes to anything you can latch on to as a happy ending. And then the fourth segment is kind of a combining all the stories kind of come together in a yeah. grand and horrible conclusion. I like, I was not a fan of this either, but I get why at the time this was probably kind of groundbreaking. Yeah. You know, I, I bet you if I was aware of what Mexico was like in this era, I would have a lot more appreciation. This feels like the kind of movie that would be a scathing indictment of Mexican culture at that time and pointing out the inequities that these people had to deal with as an outsider who and not, who was not intimately aware of that didn't work. No, for well me. said, uh, there's only one real extra feature, which is a 26 minute behind the scenes featurette. That's one of those things you often see with older foreign films where it's not really a behind the scenes featurette. It's a bunch of footage from them filming it, that's really horrible quality that they, at least in this, I've seen where they haven't even bothered subtitling this stuff. Uh, this they, one is subtitled. They do that with the Park Shane Wook movies. They always right. have that, and it's like, I don't speak Korean. Yeah. Thank you. And it's like one of those, like, okay, well, it's just, it's really just a fly on the wall on set. It's not organized or edited yeah, together in any way. So. Camcorder. Exactly. So not much there, but it's, this is a film that was all but completely out of print, so I get why they're like, oh I mean, yeah, like, this important thing to bring back. I can see this really appealing to people who either A, really appreciate Salma Hayek as an actress or B are either a fan of Mexican culture or of Mexican heritage where you get the connection that I do not as a white guy from America. Uh, so our next one is a 1937 film and a classic called Nothing Sacred. Boy, I do love the screwball comedies. I tell you what, it's <laughs> one of my favorites, the classic screwballs. And this is Carol Lombard, uh, who is, I've recently really come to terms with the fact of how wonderful she really was as an she actress. She was a brilliant actress in this movie, which... I admit I didn't like this. I didn't like it as much as the last one we did, okay. which was the uh, uh, the one with, um, good Lord, wasn't it Frederick? No, uh, I can't remember the other. Yeah, was it Joseph Cotton who was in it with him? I do not remember. I can't remember. But the Criterion the, the, one we the, talked about. The, the, it was the one about the butler. Yes, exactly. So like, it actually, it, I still really like this, but it's one of those movies I'm like, wow, I'm kind of curious why there's not a modern day remake of this. So I... I, I I want to go through the plot. Did I say the name? I, I, nothing I sacred on this. It was nothing sacred, and so basically, it is a about a New York journalist who Frederick March accidentally, maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose, um, says that they found this ancient. Is, is it not Maharishi? But it's something that I mean, is, he says. This guy is is a African a nobleman. Sultan. Yeah, a sultan. Yeah, and so basically passes him off, and he's going to come. And he's going to do this big charity event, and lo and behold, he is actually a horribly racist caricature of black people in this era. Yeah, and he's like a shoe shine guy with six kids and a poor wife. Right. Um. And so, in an effort to revitalize his career because he can't handle the punishment job he gets, he flies out to West to some other state to pick up this woman Vermont. dying of radium poisoning. And that's Carol Lombard. Yeah. Unfortunately, she is faking it completely. Well, she's not though initially, right? Cause her doctor t- tells her that this is the case. And then it turns out her doctor is kind of an old drunk What's and it? got it totally wrong. I missed that. She thought she actually had it. So I thought she always knew. She it didn't something. know okay. until right before the war, the, the reporter shows up. Like she's like, well, what do I do? I mean, she's in a bad, she's like, whoa, whoa, this is, I don't, okay. And she's already kind of become like at that point, we're ready to move 
sort of acceptance phase, ready to move on, and suddenly to find she's going to live, and this reporter shows up and goes, hey, I want to fly you out to New York City, where you've always had dreams of going, and and shower you with the love of the city, and make you into this hero, this tragic hero, and she's kind of like, oh, um, yes? Yeah, okay. And it's the weirdness of, like, her gradually coming to terms with how horrible she feels. At first, loving it, because the whole city, she gets the key to the city. It's in all the newspapers. She has, like, a parade, basically. Uh, and this guy, Frederick March, who's just so kind to her on every level. And, she, like, her slowly realizing that, A, she's kind of falling in love with him, and he's kind of falling in love with her. And, B... Obviously, this is not going to end well. (laughs) That was the section of the movie I ended up having a lot of problems with because the vast majority of it is just them basically going from extravagant venue to extravagant venue as she's being called out and heralded as this heroine everywhere. And I never bought into them falling in love. And so this was actually kind of surprising because I go into any of these classic movies with a lot of excitement because I've loved every one we've Well, that's so the hardest transfer point. And they never really get you past that, 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 that there's a question mark, question mark, question mark between, oh, I feel guilty. I've got a, there's no way this is going to work to, I don't care. We love yeah, each other. It's, and it's a lot they of, never find a way to sell that mesh. It's a point. lot of tell, not show. Yeah. They just, oh yes. And now I have feelings for you. It's like, oh, okay. And like, <laughs> The comedy is on point. I laughed. And especially when it gets into the third act and things start happening. Yeah. I got a little bit more involved. But like, I never bought into their romance. This was okay. Uh, this is a brand new 2K a scan uh, HD master uh, that is the best version of this that exists. And that, it is um, fucking gorgeous. It really is. Kino Lober put this out. Uh and I do still think if you're a fan of the screwball comedies, first off, this is Carol Lombard's only Technicolor film. Everything else was black and white. Um, interestingly enough, but she is the queen of screwball comedies. By, by I mean, nobody else even comes close, and she's still great in this. You know, I, I'd, I'd say that for, for all that I have my reservations about the movie, I would still recommend if you're a fan of this genre, check it out. The other thing that kind of got to me, and this is definitely just because of the current era we're living in. This movie is maybe one of the most cynical films on journalism I've seen in a long time. And capitalism. It it is just assumed (laughs) that all journalists are shitty liars who don't care about anything or anyone except their own fortune. Like, I I kept waiting for there to be a, no, like, here is the purity of journalism, what it can do. No, even the journalists themselves are like, yeah, we're pretty shitty people, man. We might as well be lawyers. That is true. <laughs> I mean, the dev, the film has multiple agendas. Like I said, also, it's really a kind of a, a just against high society yep. and the rich and, and black and, people. And, yeah. Bit. Yeah. A little, a little bit. <laughs> uh, Only because there's one character in the whole right. movie. Um, but you know, 1937. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't fault the, too much the hypocrisy that. of people just like all sorts of stuff. But anyway, Anyway, there uh, is a commentary track by William Wel- Wel- William Wellman Jr. about here, who is a historian who's apparently well-known for doing this sort of thing, for commentaries, for speaking before screenings and stuff, uh, who's very knowledgeable about his father's career, who's involved in this film, uh, who I guess is the director? Yes. 
so it's William A. Wellman who was the director. It's his son who, okay. who, who comes and does the commentary track for it. Anyway, um, and then there's just the movie trailer and stuff like that. But um, I still think this is one that's well worth seeing. Well, and one of the nice things is that the movies of this era were so much shorter. Like if this were half an hour longer and two hours, I'd sure. have an issue. It, it's like an hour and ten minutes. Right. It's a, it's a super breezy short. watch. All right. So our next one. <gasps> I was really shocked how surprised you were, how excited you were to get this. I was like, wow, you're a fan of this. I didn't know that. I am too. Which is the third film. In the Detective D series by by legendary Hong Kong director Chewy Hark, who more or less invented the fantasy genre of Chinese action films, like like crazy fantasy stuff. Like, I mean, I think a warrior was it uh, Warriors of Zoo Mountain or something like that was I the first know. really major like special effects driven like crazy wizards shooting lasers and jumping and doing somersaults thing. Uh, <laughs> that was him, and this is like him today still doing this kind of movie you know? based on a, believe it or not, real historical person. Detective <laughs> D was a real person. I know. I was like, wait, what? Are you kidding me? This is the third film, but it's the second film in the chronology. Cause it, it, the first film was like him very old. I'm wondering also if, if this is the, the last of the prequels, cause mm-hmm. they do a lot towards, bringing them back to the original point. There's certainly a lot of like, like things where you feel like, Oh, now we're starting to see the threads that lead into that story from, but I mean, even so totally different actor in this one and the previous one, young detective D they, Drop the young in the title of this one. It's Andy Lau, who was Detective D in the original. In the original one, yeah. Yeah, And now it's um, Mark Chow who's playing it. But yeah, he's like, how do you even explain the plot Uh, of this fucking movie? Are you prepped for this one? uh, Kind of. Well, so as far as the character, this is basically um, Sherlock Holmes if he were in a wuxia film. Uh And that's kind of how I think of the character. And the entire structure of how they introduce him in every scene is the exact same as any Sherlock Holmes movie where, yes, he comes in and he pretends not to know anything. And then, ha ha, I know everything because I have magic powers of intelligence. Um, but <laughs> they do do that sort of thing where he's able to just look at a scene and his computer yeah. brain just pieces <laughs> together all the clues. And, and he always shows up in like makeup and like disguise. But so basically the plot oh, is, the emperor gives a magic weapon to him to thank him for the last, yes, like events which, the last film called the dragon taming mace. And the uh, empress, who, if you haven't seen the original, is kind of like the she's his blowfelt, mm-hmm. and so she decides that she wants to steal this magic mace and use the fact that he lost it as weapons to disgrace him and ultimately get rid of him. Yeah. She's worried because she's like him having that mace technically makes him more powerful than anyone in the kingdom, even the emperor, which scares her. And just so you know, she wins and is ruling everything in the original movie. So like, like this is truly Blofeld just laying the traps for the ultimate big move. Um, So that's kind of the initial plot, which we get partway down as she hires people to do this or that, and she makes several attempts. And then halfway through, a new plot happens. Yeah. And that, that's my biggest problem with this movie is it's super confusing. Yeah. I kept thinking uh, about um, Superman and the new Mission Impossible Fallout, just going, why is this so fucking complicated? Stop. Um, but, I didn't find Fallout that confusing. Huh? I didn't find Fallout very confusing. No, no, that that's literally a line the character says in the movie. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, 
<laughs> but um, I thought you were saying that. Okay. No, no, no. False, not confusing. Um, but so yeah, we get to the new plot, which is there are actually a secret sect of kind of super spies from India who the previous emperor brought over used to gain power and then just said fuck off, and they are now trying to get their revenge on everyone, basically. Yeah, and uh, that's the plot as much as it can be and narrowed it's down. Like, like it kind of distracts from like the the main plot, where it's like, oh, now we have to deal with this thing. But then there's sort of like, oh, wait, maybe I'm gonna like be and, friends with some of those characters. And so, uh, and I, then I, out of nowhere, there's a Buddhist monk that rides a 50 foot tall like white gorilla. Oh, God, yeah, I loved that personally. I was like, any movie that has a fit, like a kaiju giant what, albino gorilla that comes into action at some point, I'm like, I'm all in. Like. <sighs> So the movie's plot is nonsense, and, and I, I saw the original Detective D. I still haven't seen the first prequel, so I don't know if it had the same super convoluted plot problem that this one does. It does. But that's the biggest issue here. The plot makes no sense. However, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. It's it's one of those movies where every character is part of a ninja clan and their ninja clan has special powers that are kind of magic, but they're really just cool tech that they know yeah. how to do this trick. Almost like if this type of movie and, and Chewie Hark's whole filmography almost. You guys who love anime with like everybody has crazy powers and yeah. like martial arts, this is the live action films for for you. Exactly. Chewy Hark films. They are they are all that, but live action with like in this case, lots and lots of like because one of the things is the 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 super like looks like magic, but it's actually science ish question mark in here is that they have like a powder that makes you hallucinate your big fears that somehow everyone hallucinates the same thing uh while yeah, just while, question. while also using sort of like backdrop technology trebuchets and shit to sort of make it do things so there's like giant monsters attacking crowds of like samurais and ninjas and shit and you're like oh well that's yeah a thing it, that i don't get to see every day it's really cool <laughs> uh, the, the the other issue i had is that and again i don't know if this is a problem in the previous one but there is because they branch out and are starting to tie all the threads together, there are long stretches of this movie without Detective D in them. Yeah. Detective D actually, of all the characters, is probably the one of the major characters with the least amount of screen time. Yeah, agreed. Which, it's an issue, but... I still had a blast watching this movie. I do too. Uh, the, the, there's a new woman assassin who comes in who's really fun to watch, kind of have a little budding romance with a sidekick character that he, like, just, it's who's more of the main great. character than Detective Yeah, he's really more of the main character of the movie. But I mean, yeah, like you said, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but you can more or less follow what's happening. Yeah. You're like, if you go, but wait, what? You can't look at this movie no, that no. way. It's the, like, I, these pieces are not meant to fit together in any sort of real world sensibility. But it's so nonstop insane and visually inventive with lots of cool shit going on. Who gives a fuck? Well, and because of the nature of the super fantastical mixed with the uh, Sherlock Holmes, so this is the truth to everything, mm-hmm. there's lots of moments where somebody will go into this expositional monologue and you're like, you know what? Fuck it. Okay, sure, sure. That's what happened. It was magic powder. I'll go with it now. And as long as you can do that, I highly recommend this movie. It was a blast. And this is one of those series that's been popular enough that, like, this is coming out, came out here pretty much the same time it did everywhere else. They were like, oh, no, people love the Detective D series internationally. So The the one thing I will say, so because it is an Asian cinema with CG in it, it, they don't have American quality CG. They just don't. It's getting better. But what they do 
is they have a style. And so although, yes, you can see the seams, it's visually distinct enough that it never bothered me. Because it was like, oh, it all kind of looks like this. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, having watched a lot of these, because I enjoy these type of films, the CG has taken huge steps towards getting much better. And there's even points in this where I'm like, wow, that CG is actually pretty good. Yeah. But then it'll do something that's not very good. Yeah, the, the, there's, they have a really cool flying effect they do with some of the bad guys. Well, the next one you did not get to see, which was a 12-part anthology series that came out in Britain where every episode is based on a Patricia Highsmith novel or short story. You probably know her because she wrote Strangers on a Train that Alfred Hitchcock adapted. Okay. Or she did The Talented Mr. Ripley along with the various other... Not really hard to call them sequels. When I was going to say, none isn't that a whole cast. series of books? It, it is, but I was going to say, and it's sequels, but none of the sequels have the same actors. Like, there's, huh. I think, three other Ripley movies, but all of them have completely different actors <laughs> and writers and directors. So, like, hard to really call them a sequel. It's like the Jack Ryan. Yeah, kind of <laughs> like that. Um, and these are, of course, lesser known ones, and it's super hit or miss. I admit, I only watched the first three of these, um, and it is the most British thing I have ever fucking seen in my life. <laughs> like, the first one, the cat brought it in, is this British family who, um, their cat brings in a, two human fingers, and they're like, oh dear. They're very <laughs> upper class, but country, like, you know, rural of English family. Like, they've yeah. got the, the rural well, they, estate. Like, the, the British version of a plantation house. Yeah. And, they basically decide they're going to, well, the police, we can't, there's this whole thing, well, we should call the police. Oh, but dear, it's the weekend. They wouldn't want us to bother them. I mean, I'm not even kidding. I'm not making that shit up. And they're like, oh, maybe we should try and figure this out for ourselves. And there's a thing where they, they find out who did it, and it's Bill Nye, uh, young Bill Nye. Because of and, course it is. And... He's like, you expect it's going to turn like it's shit's going to go down, right? And he's like, no, I'm, I'll do what it, you, you know, basically this guy, he was fucking my wife. Uh, this guy worked for me and he was a real asshole and I lost control and I killed him and I feel really bad about it. And they're like, oh, well, you just can't get good help these days. Don't worry. We won't tell anyone. And that is literally the whole thing. <laughs> I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just saw that thing. That is the most British thing I've ever seen in my entire life, but it kind of made me laugh. I mean, each episode is like under an hour long. And then the second episode, Sauce for the Goose, I keep reading, was the best thing in here. And it's okay, but it's Ian McShane, who's wonderful, and he's chewing all the scenery in this. He's a traveling like crooner who's uh, trying to hook up with this married housewife, but she's like wealthy but like kind of a, you know, she's, she's not, she wasn't looking for something else, but it was partially because her husband doesn't really pay any attention to her or anything. You know, there's this question, her husband dies. The question is, wait, was it murder? Did she kill him? Did, was it an accident? And it's just kind of him and, and, and the house eventually turning on each other because they never so really trusted ask, each other. Is it really an Ian McShane movie if he doesn't say cocksucker in it? It is not. <laughs> um, and each, each of the, um, the episodes are bookended by Anthony Perkins, who played Norman Bates in Psycho, of course, uh, doing a little sort of in and out framework, like, like Rod Serling type thing. Okay. But what I saw here, like I said, was just, I mean, I can't, this is not going to appeal to Americans is all I'm saying. It is not made for American audiences. It's very slow. Uh, it's got a lot of very famous British actors in here. Like I said, Ian McShane, Bill Nighy, Ian Holm, Paul Reese, Peter Vaughn, uh, and a lot more. There's a ton of famous people on this thing. If you watch British cinema, but so what it's, yeah. uh, I mean, 
I don't know. This is minor Patricia Highsmith works and it shows. All right, so let's go on to one you did see, which is Lasso. We actually, uh, our screener squad reviewed this uh, just recently, like two weeks ago, because they did VOD. And then I don't remember asking for it, but they sent me the Blu-ray. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I want to see a horror movie that takes place at a rodeo with killer rednecks. I was like, I kind of want to see that. And I actually even listened to their review after I saw it, and they hated it. They're like, it was... uh, Patience and Justin, and I, I agree with them that this film has no plot and okay, very little you. actually makes sense, and yet I still enjoyed watching yeah, it. Yeah, I'm I'm decidedly mixed on it. I mean, yeah. so so basically, the story, if there is such a thing, is a couple of mid twenties people take a bunch of retirees to a dude ranch as an outing. Yeah. It's like a senior and citizen's home or something. At the end of the evening, for no reason in particular that I could tell, at least if there was a scene, I missed it, uh, shit just goes down and people, the dude ranch employees start killing everyone. Yeah, like it's and, a thing it looks like they do at the end of the season every year yeah, or like, something. And, and that's, I'm going to get into why that's a big issue for me, but so then we follow various characters as they try to survive the night. Um, the kills are really kind of interesting and... yeah. The, the bad guys have a tendency to go for maiming instead of killing, well, and that got to me. Well, that's because, like, obviously, whoever made this is a vegetarian. <laughs> because this film is all about, look how shitty things that people do at to rodeos animals, yeah. and on farms and stuff to animals. Because every kill is something, or maiming is something that routinely they yeah. do to, like, cows and horses. Like, using that type of equipment. And I get it. Right? I totally get it. I'm with you guys, okay? Like, that, like, there should be probably more of an overlook on that sort of stuff. Like, wow, why are we still doing this? Um, but it also kind of wants to be a comedy horror. Yeah, like, and it, it also wants sometimes to, go over the top. It also wants to be a complete gross-out horror film. It wants to be a lot of different things, and it never really brings all those things together. But I think it's that... It's just so fucking odd. I've never really seen anything like it that on some level I was kind of with it. I'm actually, I got to agree with you the whole time. Every time I kind of got pulled out, I kept going, oh yeah, they're at a dude ranch. This is a dude ranch slasher movie. I mean, and and they would enjoy it. And the kills were really funny and creative. Often. one of the main characters is a one-armed guy. Yeah, Sean Patrick Flannery, who's who, one of uh, the Boondock Saints. Who kind of hits it out of the park and is really fun to watch and yeah. gives it his all. Like, I just, I really wish they took the time to have a reason or any kind of conversation about motive. Because it would have actually given a lot of weight to what if, was happening. If it was a better written script... Like, it needed some punch-up desperately, because this thing, it wants to be funny, and occasionally it is, but it needed to be more funny for how absurd yeah. the whole thing is. Because there's no explanation for why any of this is happening. There's a whole thing where this one dude, like, can become Superman when he shoots himself up with, like, animal steroids. Well, and apparently this has something to do with a, a devil-worshipping thing. I did not get that at all. Yeah, I didn't get... That was very vague at best that that was even part of that. Yeah. There is a kill that's reminiscent of the uh, Friday the 13th uh, smashing someone into a tree with a sleeping bag. That is <laughs> better than that kill. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, uh, I still think Jason X may have done it better. True. But, <laughs> but the context was everything yes, in that it one. Is. Um, 
like I said, I think this is especially for people who like the you know the the by the numbers slasher films. This is kind of a breath of fresh air for yeah, that. Type I, I would of check thing. it out if you're into that. I kind mean, of it's as dumb as any of them, like, of dumber even. But the gore is good. It moves pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> it's almost fun the way it makes no sense. Like I, if you're the kind of guy who goes back and rewatches stuff like Sleep. Uh, uh, the burning or yeah. the the one where the killer is transgender that I can never think of. Oh, Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp. Like, yeah. if you like rewatching those old slasher movies, this is for you. There is zero story, but it's still an entertaining watch. It's, it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. For, it's, it's fine. Specifically for a rabid slasher movie audience. Yeah. Uh, next up is a film that. Wow, I have very mixed feelings about this. This is my second time seeing it. I saw the I saw the Meg at a Alamo outdoor screening where they did it where you float in the water, and it was so distracting that whole experience of it. Um, I mean, nothing. It wasn't the Alamo's fault. It was just it was partially my own because they were giving out giving us a bunch of free drink tickets, and I kind of got drunk before it even started. <laughs> and then they had us floating in this area. Uh, where like there was broken rebar sticking up out of the water and shit. Are you talking about? And I was like so concerned about like fucking like getting tetanus or some shit. I was having trouble focusing on the fucking movie. And then I left to go to the bathroom at one point and missed one of the major plot points. The whole thing that there's another shark later, right? (laughs) I was like, wait, what happened? I was very confused. But on second revisit, I'm still not a huge fan of the Meg. But it's a lot better than I thought it was the first time. So I come at it from a very different point of view. I read the book when I was young. My mother and my dad read it to a point that when I posted I was watching this, my mom made me bring the movie and we watched it when I visited them. And she was like, no, no, you, you're going to bring the mech. Yeah. And we're going to watch it. <laughs> so I watched this twice um, since I had it. Um So basically to jump into the plot, because I, I want to do that before I go into I have th- – Two key complaints, maybe three about this movie. But otherwise, I I, I enjoyed it. But basically, uh, a bunch of people doing research in the Marianas Trench go down there and shit goes bad and they get stuck in the Marianas Trench in a sub. And they have X number of hours to make it before they run out of air. So they call the only guy who's ever done, done this before is Jason Statham. Of course. The... the Biggest miscast I've seen in ages. Really? I kind of, uh, I kind of yeah. think Statham was perfect for this. Role. I disagree entirely. All right, but um, he is a burnt out dude because they don't really establish yeah, what he did aside from rescue he's, people. He's living in a hut in Thailand, getting drunk um, every day. Who at this point, everyone thinks is batshit insane because he thinks a tragic event that happened to him earlier involved a giant sea beast. Yeah. Which spoiler alert, it did. Yeah. Um, and so he goes down and rescues them, and lo and behold, they let loose, now that you've given it away, two giant 60-foot sharks that Megalodons. go in and chew up people. And so I kept watching this as an adaptation. Uh, the first thing I want to call out, uh, there is a character in the book who is so horrid that I am convinced Steve Alton has really serious issues with women. Uh, the ex-wife, oh, right. who but- in the movie is a wonderful character. Yeah, they actually make her a nice person. Best improvement they could have done. Yeah. Um, Jason Statham, I think, gives it his all, but I think that he is horribly miscast in this. And granted, this could be because, like, coming at it from the book, I I have this image in my head. The character is a lot more of a scientist. who's He's a lot more Daniel Jackson from Stargate, where he's, sure. I have this crazy-ass theory, and everyone thinks I'm a loon. And Statham, I never bought his 
I'm burnt out and my life sucks. Yeah, they're playing... He's basically playing a very Statham-esque yeah. character here, but I, I feel like this movie benefits for him being kind of more of an action star. Uh, I, 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 like, I would have liked it more if he was somebody who... It was the uh, more like Matthew McConaughey in Sahara, where he's like, oh my god, I can't believe I just did this incredible thing and somehow survived. Because I have a lot easier time viewing the incredibly insane, absurd, super macho shit that he does in this film to, to like help people from the viewpoint of a guy like, yeah, that's kind of who this guy is, than yeah. some scientist guy. Well, so Also, the... The book even goes crazier in the super macho stuff. He literally kills the shark in the book by swimming down its throat and chopping up its heart with its own tooth. Yeah. But um, anyways, the other problem I have with this movie, and I think this, if I remember correctly from your review, was a big part of what you had with it. But it's not mean enough. It, it needs to be bloodier. Yeah. Uh, they they curve so it down to PG-13. a PG-13. Yeah. And like, it's still, I still had a lot of fun with it. But if they had gone full genre with it and just embraced the chaos and the violence, like in the book, the shark is a nasty son of a bitch. It is just massacring people and it is gory. And that's part of the fun. It even is an albino shark too, which even is kind of cooler. And I wish they had done that. But overall, like, this is like watching the PG-13 cut of a great R-rated movie. It kind of feels and that I way. I kept wanting that R-rated, but still, I still enjoyed it. It's a giant shark movie. I love Sea Beast movies. I mean, it's eminently watchable, yeah. to be sure. And hell, I would be excited to see a second film if they decided to do the even more insane book sequel, apparently, yeah. which yeah, goes I, even crazier places. I would, too, but. as long as they went in and made it R-rated and angry. Although, the, the one thing I want to comment on, um, I, I saw a lot of people complaining about the cross-pollination of Chinese and American money being super obvious in this mm-hmm. movie. And yes... But at the same time, all that's in the book, too. Like, the book is very much a, here's this white guy working with a large section of Japanese people because that's what the company is. So this is one of the rare times I've seen that Chinese-American co-production that it fit and it it didn't feel obtrusive to me. It was like, oh, yeah, this is the source material. This okay. is what he was hanging out with. Um, yeah, I, like I said, it's entertaining, but it's also, it's just so nowhere near as good as it should be. Yeah. You know, it should have been better. It should have been more over the top uh, on multiple different levels. Yeah, and I, occasionally it gets there. Occasionally it has moments where you're like, okay, that was what we're talking about. I, I That's what like I wanted to see. Three more attack sequences. Yeah. Yeah. It's not quite there, but it's still, it's good enough that it's worth a watch. And you um, know what? Rain Wilson did a good job. He I did. I, I, I keep being surprised at how much I end up enjoying him in movies that he's in. Yeah. I always expect to not like him, but I was like, yeah, and he plays a, pretty much a wormy character and everything yeah. he's in. Um, there is a making of the Meg called chomp on this. <laughs> uh, of course, a super action movie line. That's about 12 minutes longer, which is very studio EPK interview with the director and what have you, uh, and cast and crew. There's 10 minutes, 10 and a half minutes creating the beast, which look at the effects of it. Uh, there is a promotional clip, which I've seen on more than one film called New Zealand film commission, which is just sort of like, we'll give you money, but you got to put this trailer on the Blu-ray that says, <laughs> wouldn't it be great to make your movie in New Zealand? And then there's, uh, a bunch of like mini trailers for, for like other, uh, Warner brothers 
this production. So there's not a lot on here. Um, but hey, what the, you already know if you want this thing. It's yeah, a like giant if, fucking shark eating people. If you're like me and you love sea monster movies, you're, you already are going to watch this just because it's a giant shark. I, I did laugh during the EPK with Tur- Turtle Dob, the director going like, Look, I've never done a movie like this before, and they're like, "Do you want to make a movie about like, uh, like the biggest shark that ever existed, sea creature that ever existed, like eating a bunch of people?" And he's like, "What idiot would say no?" Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I remember my third other issue. So, so, like I said, three issues. I don't like Jason Statham in this. Could should have been more violent. The score is possibly the worst score I've ever seen in an entire Hollywood movie. Like, okay, every single scene that should be terrifying and scary is weird and mysterious and like just the tone is off and it's just a terrible score. I can see that. All right. Our last film we're talking about this, uh, this round is one of the most both celebrated and also to some degree like questioned films of the year. Cause it's dead was not a hundred percent by any means from critics, including me, but I did enjoy it. And this is the film I went back and watched again and decidedly like better the second time, but I still have the same problems I did with the first. And that is black Klansmen. Yeah. Your, y'all's review here. One of us did not appreciate this movie in theaters at all. We were very mixed on it. We were like, okay, there's stuff. There's a lot of parts of a good film here that never feel like they completely congeal to a good film. And I, Still agree with that statement. I still don't think this is like a movie. It's a lot of great ideas with some great performances, some great music, and just and all right. So here's what it is: Spike Lee, and he said this. He's admitted this. He's and I don't mean that as sort of like like oh you're guilty. Um, he's like we've reached a age where everything is so propagandized. I was like, well, fuck it, I'm going to make my own propaganda movie, which is exactly what this well, is. That's what Spike Lee does. Like yeah. I, I watched Chirac not too terribly yeah. long ago. And this thing, Spike Lee doesn't deal in subtlety. No. He works with the sledgehammer. And once you embrace that about his film, like going into this, I knew I was about to be preached to. Yeah. And that cuts a lot of it out. It's just like, okay, I know what I'm going to be walking into. It's, it's not, I, I, I honestly absolutely do not mind being preached to. It's just when the whole movie stops dead to do it, that annoys me, which happens twice in this movie where it's like the whole movie stops and suddenly you're at a Ted talk and you're like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. I agree. (laughs) There's no way around it. That's a flaw, but that happens in Chirac like two Mm -hmm. or three times. It's, I I attribute that to Spike Lee's style. Yeah. That's what he does. The the issues I had with this movie uh, were, so it, it, just if anyone doesn't know, this is about a true event that happened where the first black police officer in the Colorado, Colorado police force. Thank you. Uh, says, fuck it. I'm just going to call the KKK and say, what's up. And basically through sheer ballsiness, Kind of becomes a member of the KKK. Over the phone. Anyway. Um, him and, uh, Adam Driver decide to go in and do this investigation and yeah. find out what's going on. So that, that is the trailer. Yeah. With, but um, Dennis, they- uh, Denzel Washington's son, who is, wow, sounds exactly like him. John David, uh, Washington playing Ron Stallworth, who is the guy on the phone. And Adam Driver, when he has to be in person, is the detective playing him there, which obviously right off the bat, you're like, I can see. Complications. Yeah. <laughs> in this movie, as opposed to the true story, also, uh, which brings a whole nother level to it that I did enjoy. Adam Driver is Jewish, but he's one of those guys who was kind of not really raised inside the culture. And so he's very sort of mixed feelings about his own, like about this whole situation that's going on here. Like there's a point where he's like, 
like Ron, Ron Stellworth's going, why aren't you taking all of this more personally? He's like, you're Jewish. They hate you just as much, if not more than me. And he's having to confront his own feelings oh, about that, and, that I think is one of the more interesting God, aspects. They, they in the handle film. that so well, but I, I don't want to get pulled away. Cause so, so that that's half of the movie. The other part of it is that's where Spike Lee does some of his, uh, sermonizing, but it's, Basically, Ron Stallworth investigating, I guess, the Black, not the Black Panther movement, but a Black rights group who are becoming politically active, who are very anti-cop. And I feel like Spike Lee lets the message get in front of the movie because as much as I expected that kind of thing, watching him deal with having to investigate a a um black militant group yeah. it, it was like okay this is interesting but i kept uh, okay like look at you my keep watch, watch let's, yeah. let's, let's let's go on to the actual plot but it, it felt like all that which of uh, which as near as i could tell from reading about the real story was completely whole cloth made up like that like that whole thing with the love interest and all that like none of that was and part of the actual I story. I didn't want any of that. Yeah, I, I kind but, of felt all of that felt like an unnecessary sideline. But but once we get into the actual KKK investigation, that's where it got really interesting. And, yeah. and I'm going to speak very obliquely about the review you guys did. Um like like one of the things that was brought up that I I felt was good when you view this as a message film is the idea that they're not necessarily dealing with a KKK proper. But what I felt this movie was, whether or not this is what it was trying to be about, but what it ended up being about was the shift of the KKK from a radical terrorist organization that exists for that purpose into an organization that has a public face that is very, as friendly as you can be while being a horrible white supremacist asshole, yeah. but is within the law. And then it's also a breeding grounds that encourages its members to take this violent action. And so like never it, in so many words, it, it, it ends up being really frustrating because there's never a moment of ha ha, the KKK is doing this. And so therefore we will take them all down because they don't do that anymore because they're smart enough not to do that. Yeah. This is the KKK where we now have David Duke on national television a couple of years ago. Yeah. Played um, in this movie very humorously by, and I don't mean that as sort of like making light of it as sort of like a, a Topher Grace playing him. He's a, a insecure oh, schlub of a man, which he, does, he very much is in real life. He does a great performance. It, it's, it reminds me that Topher Grace is another one of those guys where I keep wishing he would have his big break mm-hmm. and have something besides that 70s show that is like his claim to fame. Right. But yeah, like, it wasn't Venom, that's for sure. So it, <laughs> I have to admit, I really enjoyed this movie. My wife actually, when I was telling her about the review you guys did, got angry <laughs> Was like, what the fuck is wrong with them? Can't they see the movie is about this? I, we know um, we totally got what the movie was about. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those like I completely agree with everything Spike Lee says here. Like everything he's trying to say, his entire message, I agree with him. There's nothing here. I go well. I don't know about that. My problem is that as as a movie, it just is kind of all over the place. Yeah. Well, and and so the, one of the things that got brought up a bit at 
on the review originally, and I feel like it's worth mentioning here, is that at the end of the movie, to kind of prove a point, they cut to footage from the Charlotte March and the murder of the woman. Yeah. Well, like, it's hard to watch. It, it hits you like a fucking brick. And yeah, like I was crying at the end and this was, it was heavy. To be honest, that bothered the other guys a lot more than it did me. It, it, I took a step back and his point is valid because he shows that footage. It's that moment that he drives home that, yeah, we got these guys, but don't you see this is what's happening? And they're just getting mainstream and they're just getting smarter. And it's just like, oh yeah. He's right. We are still dealing with these people and we're still dealing with this shit today. And so as much as it it was a gut punch, I feel like it was a valid one. Although the the issue I have with that, and this is an issue I have with Spike Lee in general, is that, yeah, uh, as a card-carrying socialist liberal, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie and I agree with it. What's the big deal? I'm already on board. Yeah. I don't think anybody who believes in a, who believes that, uh, who is on the alt right or who is in favor of the KKK and these characters is going to see this. They're not going to see this and go, yeah, I changed my mind. That's the thing is like, it's for, it's for the choir. Everything on here is so, yes, there's nobody who's a liberal like you and I, card carrying liberal, doesn't already feel this way about everything. There's nothing in here that's being presented that's new or, yeah. or unsubtle or, or, or dealing with the, the deeper complexities of the modern age and the issues. This is just so on the surface that I was kind of like, you know, what's better than this movie. We'll talk about next time we get together blind spotting where I was like, this is a movie that actually deals with a really interesting deep cut level of racism. Okay. That actually you're like, maybe you don't think about things like this on this level. Things like that where I'm like, wow, we're actually getting deep into the conversation. This is not a deep conversation. No. The, the, this is this is the kind of movie that people like me are going to watch and go, yeah, yeah, this is relevant to today, man. And that's it. It's going to have no real impact. And, and people like, yeah, the Klan is bad and they're still around. <laughs> well, no shit. Like, uh, <laughs> so it's hard. I had the same issue with Chirac. Like, they're really good movies. I enjoy, they I enjoy them, but... I feel like by being so obvious, he's also making his movies ineffectual. And it it sucks because I love it when a movie or show is legitimately about something. It's that's why I love the purge movies is even when they're bad, at least they're fucking about something. Well, the bonus features, there's a Spike Lee joint, which is five minutes long, which is the real Ron Stallworth, uh, Jordan Peele, Topher Grace, John David Washington, Laura Harrier, and hell of Harry Belafonte. who also has a small, uh, Ted talk in the middle of this movie. Um, (laughs) uh, talk about basically recount the story, and how they, why they decided to work with Spike Lee, yada, yada. And then there's an extended trailer featuring Prince's Mary, Don't You Weep. And believe it or not, that's it. I'm shocked that that was all the bonus features on this thing. I would have loved to have seen it 20 minutes on the real story. Yeah. You know but I think, I you know why it's not there? Because it's not very similar to what actually, what happened in say, this I, movie. <laughs> I, I want to see like a documentary on the Ron Saltworth. Yeah. Cause, Cause like that part is really interesting. I love the idea of a black guy basically going to the cover as the KKK. It, in and of itself, what actually happened is really interesting. And it feels like the movie didn't trust the real story enough 
to yeah. just stick with largely the true story, which, like I said, I don't inherently have a problem with if it makes it a better movie. I don't feel like those things they added made it a better movie. I, I agree. And, like, it sucks, too, because I want to like this movie a lot more than I did. And, like, I, I still suggest if if you're the kind of person that the movie we're talking about doesn't offend your core, mm-hmm. then you ought to check this out. It's worth watching at least once. Agreed. But... I don't know that it's worth owning. As much as I enjoyed my one watch, I can tell you that I'll probably not watch this movie again. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'll probably go back to it at least you know, one more like, time eventually. Like but Chirac at least had that prose verse. So yeah. like, I'll probably go watch that before I watch this. Yeah. Um, like I, said, I, I don't disagree. This is one of the better black, uh, I'm sorry, Spike Lee films that we've seen in quite some time, but I, it's no Malcolm X. That's for goddamn sure. Yeah. <laughs> that that's a great Spike Lee film. Do the right thing is a great Spike Lee film. Uh, Inside never, Man is a great Spike Lee. I've film. still never seen Do the Right Thing. Oh, it's uh, wonderful. I, I've I came on to Spike Lee at Twenty Fifth Hour, and yeah. so I've seen most of what he's done after that. But all of his uh, early fundamental movies that got him his career. A lot of I those. Seen. A lot of those I don't care for, like School Days and all that. I'm like, yeah, I don't really. She's got. Oh, is it? She's got to have it. She, I think she's got all that. Yeah, or, she's I was like, I don't really like this very much, but it just didn't. They they too felt like a mess. But do the right thing is one of those movies that really was kind of like lightning in a bottle. Everything in it was just kind of perfect. Highly recommend going back to it. Anyway, that is it for this week's digital noise. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me. It is my weekend. pleasure. I'm sending this poor bastard home again in December with a whole other stack of movies. So I'm like, you know what? Screw your family. Watch these movies for me. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's some stuff in there. Well, actually, there's very little stuff no, in no, there no. you can watch. I, I looked. None of this is something that I can watch around my kids. You're not watching least. Lucio Fulci's zombie with your kids? No, <laughs> you know, he's canon enough. He won't get it. It's good. He won't know what's going on. It's like, ooh, cherry flavored. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'll be back soon with John Golson talking about a stack of movies with him. Thank you for listening. Support our sponsors, Circle Brewery, right here in Austin. You go see them. Uh, their tap room has a delicious array of beers at reasonable prices and kind of just a cool little community space as well. Please think about becoming a subscriber. Oh, I can't tell you how much I help. And don't forget the actual links that you see on this on the page on oneofus.net for this particular podcast has pictures of all the uh, movies uh, that we talked about. If you click on one and bring you to Amazon page, if you buy that through Amazon, through that click, we get a kickback, but it, you don't even have to buy that. Do all your Christmas shopping through one of our clicks on there. As long as you start from one of our clicks, we get a kickback from whatever you buy. Yep. So do that. <laughs> and thank you for listening. <laughs>